Well, for those who are visiting with us, we have been typically studying the Gospel of Mark. But I'm taking a little departure from the Gospel of Mark. I did so last week, and I will do so this week. And turn your attention, rather, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. My reason for doing that is because when I left the sermon last week, we were in the middle of the context, and I need to round it out. As you're turning there to 1 Corinthians 15, let me remind you of the situation in that chapter. The Corinthian church had a lot of problems. They were one of the most immature churches in the New Testament. In chapter 15, the problem that Paul is facing is that there were some among the Corinthians who were denying resurrection. They apparently believed that Jesus had been risen, but they were denying the truth of resurrection in general. Corinth is in Greece, and perhaps they had been influenced by Greek philosophers, and of course, Greek philosophical dualism said that the body's bad and the soul is good. The body is a prison house for the soul, so why would you want to have a body forever and imprison the soul forever? And so perhaps they were influenced by that philosophy. But Paul, or the Apostle Paul, needs to convince them of that error. And in doing so, in the first 11 verses, he affirms, first of all, that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is an indispensable part of the gospel. What is the gospel in a nutshell? Jesus died, was buried, and rose again. And then, in that same section, he shows that the resurrection of Jesus is an indisputable fact of history. And he recalls how Jesus appeared to multiple people, as many as 500 at one time, alive from the dead. And then he wants to show that the resurrection, 12 to 19, that the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of his people are inextricably intertwined and bound together. You see, if you make a universal negative, there is no resurrection. All that is needed to refute that is one exception. So if Jesus has been raised, then that may, opens the possibility for others to be saved. And that's his point, that Christ has been saved. Now, he first goes down the trail of the possibility. What if Jesus was not risen from the dead? And he talks about the tragic consequences for believers of that. But then in verse 20, he comes, he bursts forth with this confident assertion, but now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, last week we considered verses 20 to 23, and I had three points. The first was this, the triumphal de declaration of Christ's resurrection and ours. Christ has been raised from the dead. It's a fact. But not only that, he's been raised as the first fruits, which means he's just the first one to rise from the dead. All who believe in him will one day be raised as well. There's a whole harvest to be resurrected as well. And then we noted from verses 21 and 22 what I call the theological justification of Christ's resurrection and ours. Where does the resurrection of Jesus and our resurrection fit in with God's big picture? Well, we read there, for since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Here we are given a glimpse of God's big picture of salvation. Our first parent, Adam, plunged the entire human race into rebellion and death. Spiritual death 
separation of the soul from God, physical death, separation of the soul from the body, and eternal death. As in Adam, all die. But as in Christ, all will be made alive. You see, in God's amazing grace, he intends to reverse the effects of the fall. He's going to turn paradise lost into paradise regained. There's going to be a new earth, a new paradise. And in order for us to live on that new earth, we're going to need new glorified bodies. That's where our resurrection fits in with God's big plan for the ages. And then I noted the temporal succession of Christ's resurrection in ours. Verse 23 says, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, after that those who are Christ at his coming. There's a, a sequence. Jesus was raised when he came the first time. When he comes the second time, believers will be raised. Now this morning, I want to consider a fourth point from this passage, verses 24 to 28, and I'm calling it the timeline of events that surround our resurrection. Follow as I read 24 to 28. Then comes the end, when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things to him, that is to God, then the Son himself who will also be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Now, friends, what I want to do is try to arrange a chronological order of events from these verses. And when we do, I think we get a pretty clear picture of eschatology. Now, many of you know that word. Some of you may not. The word eschatology comes from the Greek word eschatos, which means extreme or last in time or place. What eschatology is, it's that aspect of theology which has to do with end time events, how God is going to wrap up human history. That's what we're talking about when we're talking about eschatology. What's going to happen at the end? How is God going to wrap up human history? And I think we have a clear chronology here, and I hope you'll be able to see it. First, we want to see that Christ began to reign over a kingdom. Verses 24 and 25 tell us, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The kingdom of Christ is going to have an end. If it has an end, that means it has a beginning. A very crucial question is, when did the reign of Jesus Christ begin? When did Jesus Christ first become a king over a kingdom? And here I need to share with you several verses. I'll do it as, as expediently as possible. But you remember early on in Mark, Mark starts out by saying, Jesus saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. When Jesus comes the first time, he's saying the kingdom is here. The king is here. And now the kingdom is here. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 12, 28 and 29. I'll try to proceed rapidly through these passages. You can look them up on your own, on your own time. But Matthew 12, 28 and 29, Jesus says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. 
What was the evidence that Jesus' kingdom had come? He's casting out spirits by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's evidence that the kingdom has come. In Luke 16 and verse 16, we read these words. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the time of John the Baptist, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. Jesus came preaching the kingdom of God and people were coming into the kingdom because the kingdom was already there. In Matthew, well, let me skip over. John 18, 36, when Jesus stands before Pilate, you remember his words, my kingdom is not of this world. If it was, my servants would fight. His kingdom was already there. It wasn't a physical kingdom because his servants weren't taking up swords to protect him from being arrested. My kingdom is not of this world, but the kingdom was there. It just wasn't a political, physical kingdom. The very last verse of the book of Acts, where do we find the apostle Paul? Well, he's in Roman custody. He's in a Roman prison. What is he doing? Acts 28, 31, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching concerning the Lord Jesus Christ with all openness unhindered. What's he doing? He's preaching the kingdom. And what is the kingdom about? It's about Jesus Christ, his person and his work. When we come to the epistles, the letters written to the churches, what does that tell us about the presence of the kingdom? Well, Paul says in Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God does not consist in eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. That's a wonderful chapter on Christian liberty of conscience, but he's saying it's not about, you know, the things that Christians can disagree with and still be brothers and sisters. The kingdom of God is about the great issues of righteousness, peace, therefore being justified by faith. We have peace with God through Jesus Christ and joy in the Holy Spirit. He's preaching a kingdom that has already come. In 1 Corinthians 4.20, he says to the Corinthians, the kingdom of God is not a matter of word, but power. It's not a matter of talk, but the kingdom of God has to do with transformed lives through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's one that really seals it, Colossians 1.13. Paul says, he, God, has delivered you from the kingdom or domain of darkness and transferred him, us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Friends, if you are a believer in Jesus this morning, you are in the kingdom of God's beloved son. Why? Because the kingdom of Jesus came when he came the first time. But that question is answered in our very text. If you're, if you're still open to 1 Corinthians 15, listen to what it says there in verse 27. For he, God, has put all things in subjection under his Christ's feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection to him, it is evident that he is accepted. Okay, he has put all things in subjection under his feet. That quote is from Psalm 8. In Psalm 8, it's addressed to mankind. What is man that God is mindful of him? And it's talking about the dominion of man over the earth. But it's interesting that when that is applied in the New Testament, it is applied to Jesus. Man was given dominion, but we forfeited that by our sin. But man exercises dominion through Jesus Christ. 
And so when did God put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet? We have an answer in Ephesians chapter 1 when we read this. Beginning at verse 20, when, which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet. Friends, God put all things in subjection under Jesus' feet. He, he gave Jesus a kingdom when Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Here's the point. The reign of Jesus Christ over a kingdom began with his first coming, especially sealed by his resurrection. That's the first point. When did the reign of Jesus begin? When he came the first time, he brought in the kingdom because he is the king. Now, it's important to make clear what kingdom he came to bring. It was not the kingdom over which Jesus rules as God. As part of the Godhead, second person of the Trinity, he has ruled over the universe with the Father and the Son eternally. But the kingdom he came to bring in his first coming was a mediatorial kingdom. It was a kingdom of the redeemed. A couple of weeks ago, our brother Caleb preached from the Great Commission. Remember Matthew 28? Jesus says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations. What kingdom did Jesus come to bring? It was a kingdom of salvation, a kingdom of the redeemed. It was the kingdom over which he reigns as the mediator between God and man. So Jesus Christ comes to die for sinners, is raised from the dead, is exalted to the right hand of the Father, and he is now reigning as a mediatorial king. That's the first point. I hope it's clear. It seems the Bible's crystal clear. When Jesus came the first time, his kingdom reign began. But now, secondly, Christ's reign over his kingdom will end. Look at verse 24 to 26 again. Then comes the end. Okay, believers are raised at Christ's coming. Then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father, when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ's kingdom, this mediatorial kingdom, has a beginning, but can you see it has an end? And the key question here is, when will that kingdom end? Well, let's answer it from the text. I think the answer comes in each of the verses. In verse 24, it is described as the time when he has abolished all rule and authority and power. Christ's kingdom, this mediatorial kingdom, will end when he has abolished all rule and all authority and all power. Now, when the Bible refers to rule and authority and power, sometimes it refers to all rule and authority and power in the universe, even that of angels. But at other times, it refers to the demons. In Colossians 1, uh, 2.15, for example, the apostle says, when he, Christ, had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. By the cross, Jesus overcame the demonic powers. So when will his reign end? 
when he has abolished all rule and authority and power, which includes all demonic power. But then in verse 25 of our text, it says, he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. There aren't only demons opposing Jesus. There are wicked men opposing Jesus, right? Right from the beginning. They put him to death. Psalm 2 talks about the nations raging against the Christ. So not only will he conquer all demonic power, he will also have victory over all human enemies as well. When will Christ's reign end? Verse 26 answers it this way. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. Christ's reign, mediatorial reign, will come to an end when the last enemy is destroyed, which is death. You see, from the time Adam sinned, death has held sway over the entire human race. And even we who are believers are subject to physical death. Just because you're a believer in Jesus, it doesn't mean you're not going to die, right? But one day, one day, death will be no more. This is even more clear. When will this happen? You turn a page over to verses 54 and 55, we read this. But when the perishable will have put on the imperishable, that's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. When we exchange these mortal perishable bodies for a new resurrected imperishable body, when this perishable will put out, have put on imperishable and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. You see it? The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Death swallowed up in victory. Does it sound like it's the same thing? When will that happen? Well, according to those verses, it will happen when we put on our new body. It will happen when we are resurrected with our resurrected bodies. And that will happen, according to our passage, at the second coming of Christ. Now, here's an interesting point. When it says death is swallowed up in victory, that's taken from a prophecy Isaiah 25, 8. And I want you to listen carefully to this prophecy that Paul quotes. Isaiah 25, 8. He, God, will swallow up death for all time, and the Lord will wipe tears away from all faces. That's what Paul is quoting. When will death be swallowed up for all time? At the same time, that he wipes away all tears. Now, you may recall that that's the language of Revelation 21. That's the language of the new heavens and the new earth. That's when death will be swallowed up. That's when we are resurrected, which is when Jesus Christ comes back again. Are you getting the picture here? Christ kingdom has a beginning. When he came the first time, he brought the kingdom. He's reigning through this period. His kingdom will have an end point, that mediatorial kingdom, when he gives it over to the Father. When will that be? When he has abolished all his enemies, all authority and power and rule, all demonic opposition, all human opposition. When death is put to death and death is no more, that's when the kingdom will end. There's one other description in verse 24. Then 
the end. Notice, Christ was raised the first fruits. After that, those who are Christ at his coming, then the end. Then the end. When will the kingdom end? When will be the end? When Christ comes again. And I think the end there, the word telos means the end of the world, the end of the age. I don't have time to take you through, but when you study that word, the end, you come to the conclusion it's the end of the age. I'll just give one familiar quotation. Lo, I am with you always, even to the telos, the end of the age. When the Bible in the New Testament talks about the end, it's the end of this world. So, Here's the picture. Christ comes the first time. He establishes his kingdom, which is sealed by his resurrection. He's exalted at the right hand of of God. He's reigning now as king over his kingdom. But there's opposition from evil men, from evil spirits. Even his redeemed people have to suffer, even death. But at his second coming, He totally defeats those enemies, demonic and human, and death itself is abolished. Believers are resurrected. This is the time of the end, the end of the world. Now, brothers and sisters, I I need to tell you that there is another view. This seems very simple, and I think it's very clear. There is another view that many Christians hold, and we respect them. And it is this, that when Jesus comes again, it is not the end of the world. But rather, when Jesus comes again, he comes to establish a literal, physical, thousand-year reign upon the earth. And there are very many Christians who hold that. A lot of people a lot smarter than me hold that. But I want to show you why I don't think that's the best interpretation of the passage. If that's true, you have to squeeze that huge future event in between the fact that he'll put all enemies, I'm sorry, let me get it here. Those who are Christ at his coming, then the end. If if it's not the end of the world when Christ comes again, you have to say, We're resurrected when he comes, but then there's a thousand-year period where he's reigning on the earth, and then the end. And it doesn't make sense to me that Paul would leave that out. He's sketching out the events that are going to happen at the end of time, and that's a huge epic. It's a huge event in redemptive history in the minds of some, but he completely leaves it out, and sometimes, somehow you have to squeeze it in. At his coming, the believers are raised, then the end. Well, it's not really the end because there's a thousand years in between and a whole lot's going to happen. It it just doesn't make sense. Here's another problem with the view that says Christ is going to reign on the earth for a literal thousand years. You notice what happens when Jesus comes again? This mortal puts on immortality. Death is swallowed up in victory. When Jesus Christ comes a second time, it's the end of death. But for those brothers and sisters who believe that there's a a literal thousand years on the earth, they say that death happens in those thousand years. How can there be death 
in that thousand-year period when death ends at his second coming. It's very problematic. And so, brothers and sisters, I, I'm commending to you a, a much more simple scheme, which I think is the biblical scheme. Christ comes the first time, he brings in his kingdom, he reigns until he comes a second time when he conquers all his enemies, even death, there's resurrection, and his mediatorial kingdom ends. It's a more simple scheme. And for me, I want to adopt the most simple scheme that fits the information of Scripture. Only if the Bible makes it more complex do I want to go there. But I think it's fairly simple. And I want to show you another line of thinking which I think seals it and should really help us in our view of eschatology. Again, it's not something we're going to divide over. But we need to have some idea of what's happening, what's coming down. When you study the New Testament, you find that three things are grouped together. The second coming of Christ, a general universal judgment upon the human race, and the matter of eternal life or eternal death. Let me show you a few passages which bring these things together. You can see it with your own eyes. In Matthew 16 and verse 27, Matthew 16, verse 27, I'm going to try to turn quickly to these passages. However, so that, oh, that's 17, sorry. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then repay every man according to his deeds. What do you have? Jesus coming back, a general judgment. He will repay every man according to his deeds. In Matthew 25, a well-known passage, 31 to 33. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's his second coming, and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them from one another as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. Verse 34, then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But then in verse 41, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into eternal fire. The second coming of Christ, what happens? The world is judged. The believers are taken to be with Jesus. The wicked ones are sent away. In Acts 17, 30 and 31, Paul is preaching to the Athenians, the pagans there in Greece, and he says this in 17, 30 and 31, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all men everywhere should repent, because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness. There's a coming day. We know it's his second coming, and he will judge the entire world. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, all teaching the same thing. For after all, I'm going to pick up at verse 6, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Just those two verses, talking about the second coming of Christ. What will happen? Those who are afflicted, the persecuted believers, will be given relief. 
and those who are the persecutors will, will suffer. Return of Christ, universal judgment. In 2 Peter, Peter teaches the same thing as we would expect. There's no contradiction among the writers of the Bible. 2 Peter 3, verse 4. People are saying, where's the promise of his coming? Forever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Verse 7. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. In other words, it's talking about Jesus is coming back again. People are mocking, where's the promise of his coming? It's been so many years, he's not coming back. No, according to his promise, he is coming back. And then verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in, in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and the works in it will be burned up. Since all these things are to be destroyed, what sort of people ought we to be looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed, etc. Jesus is coming back. What's going to happen? New heavens and new earth, and we look for a glorious future. You see, there are three things that go together in the New Testament. The return of Jesus Christ, a universal judgment of all people, and the destinies being determined, eternal life or eternal judgment. This will be the end of the world and the beginning of the eternal state. So here's the sequence. Christ has come the first time. He's come to bring in his mediatorial kingdom. He reigns between his first coming and his second coming. At his second coming, all his enemies are defeated, demonic and human. Death itself comes to an end, and it's the time of the resurrection of believers. Why doesn't Paul mention in 1 Corinthians 15 the resurrection of unbelievers unto judgment? Because it's not his purpose. His purpose is to convince them of the resurrection of believers. And that will be the end of the world. Now, one more point. Christ will then deliver up his kingdom to the Father. Back in our text, verse 24, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom to the God and Father. Verse 27 and 28, where he has put, God has put all things under his Christ's feet. When he says all things are put in subjection to him, it is evident that he is accepted who puts all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to Christ, that will be at his second coming, then the Son himself also will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to himself so that God may be all in all. The picture is when Jesus has come back, conquered all his enemies, then that mediatorial kingdom, that kingdom of the redeemed, he'll hand over to his Father. He'll resign his commission as mediator, so to speak. He is not needed anymore. His work is finished. All his redeemed are saved and gathered into heaven. All the lost are in the lake of fire. Then he delivers up that mediatorial kingdom to God so that God is all in all, so that God as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit reigns over an eternal kingdom forever. But the mediatorial kingdom of Jesus will come to an end because his work is finished. All right? So, brothers and sisters, maybe I've, if you're a young believer, I'm sure you're thoroughly confused. Some of you have walked around in eschatology for a long time. You have a fixed view. 
I think this is, this is a major text on eschatology, and I think it's very clear. Two comings of Christ, two stages of the kingdom. He comes to bring the kingdom the first time as a suffering servant. He comes a second time as a victorious conquering king, conquering all his enemies, then presents that kingdom to the Father. And I think the scheme is simple. At the second coming of Christ, death is abolished. Believers are resurrected. Unbelievers are also resurrected unto a resurrection of judgment, if you look at other passages. And, um, and that's the end of the world. There's no thousand years after that because there can be no death after that. It's the eternal state for believers. I commend that to you. I'm not going to fight over it, but commend it to you. So a couple of applications. I think this passage does help confirm to us a rather simple, straightforward understanding of last time events. Let's not make it more complicated than the Bible does, right? And I think the Bible's pretty simple. Jesus came. He brought his kingdom. We're in the kingdom now in its first stage. But there's a consummate kingdom when he comes again. That will be the end of time. That's what we have to look forward to, the return of Jesus Christ, and then the eternal state, new heavens and a new earth. I think it's a rather straightforward plan. Now, Christians disagree as to what degree of victory Jesus will attain during this present church age, right? And there are some Christians who believe that the gospel will so conquer the nations that the world will be largely Christianized. Some of you perhaps hold that view, that the gospel is going to so conquer that the world will be majorly Christian. I don't see that myself, but let me say this. If that is the case, it's not on the horizon, is it? It's not looking good right now. Now, it could be. I mean, it didn't look good in the first century. It didn't look good in the 15th century when the Reformation came, right? But my point would be this, as a point of unity. If that's going to happen, it's not on the horizon. It's probably not going to happen at least in my lifetime, as the oldest person here so far. And it might likely not happen in your lifetime. So we got all we can do to fight the current battles of the things that are challenging the gospel. And next week in Sunday school, I hope to take up some contemporary issues. We're going to study social justice and critical theory, take a break from the confession. We've got plenty of battles to fight to bring the gospel to our generation, don't we? Without arguing about when... You know, God's going to conquer the nations. If, if the Lord wants to conquer the nations and make the world majorly Christian, I will rejoice. I don't think it's going to happen for certain theological reasons. And I, for sure, I don't think I'll live to see it. So we don't have to, it, it's a largely idealistic thing. If it's true, it's, it's in the idealistic future. Would you, would you, can you grant that? So I think we can all be co-belligerents and fellow soldiers in seeking to advance the gospel in our generation. I don't believe that we're going to be raptured before a seven-year tribulation period. But guess what? If that's true and Jesus comes to rapture us, I'll volunteer to go. 
I'm not going to say, well, Lord, that doesn't fit with my eschatology. I'm, you're going to have to come later for me. No, I will go. I will go in a rapture, although I don't see it in the Bible, okay? Um, so I think we can all unite as co-belligerents against the enemies of the gospel, and we can all work hard to bring the kingdom through the gospel in our generation. Amen? Good. Glad. But secondly, as we close and come to the communion, you know, this is about the end of the world. And that's heady stuff. It's fascinating stuff. It really is. And nobody has all the answers. And every view has problems, including mine. I don't have all the answers. But it should make us think about our personal end. There will be an end of the world. But each of us is going to have a personal end. We're all going to die, right? And what should really consume us more than the end of the world is what about my personal end? The Bible says it is appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. We're all going to stand before God in the judgment and the issue will be eternal life or eternal judgment in hell. And if there is anyone here who has not yet come to Jesus Christ, I plead with you to not be so much concerned about the end of the world, but to think about your personal end. You're going to die. And even if you're young, you're not guaranteed 70, 80, 90 years. A lot of people die young in car crashes and other things. And I would plead with you to think about your personal end. The gospel is good news. You see, if the gospel was a message that, well, our good works have to outweigh the bad, that wouldn't leave a lot of hope for an old 70-year-old like me, would it? If I have lived 70 years apart from God, I don't have another 70 years to balance the scales in my favor. That would not be good news. Well, you've done bad. Now you've got to do good to outweigh your bad. That's not the gospel. That's not good news. The good news is that when you put your faith in Jesus and say, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. I've been a rebel against you. I've lived for myself and not for you. I need the salvation of Jesus Christ. God will instantly forgive you all of your sins. And it's no harder for him to forgive 90 years of sin as it is to forgive nine years of sin. That's the good news of the gospel. By grace, we are saved through faith, not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. If you haven't yet done it, come to Jesus. You don't know what a day may bring forth. You don't know if you have tomorrow. Put your whole trust in Jesus and he will save you instantly. Then you'll be ready for whenever he comes. Let's pray and we'll come to the table. Lord, you have been pleased to make some things more clear than others. And your people can be united around those verities. Some things, Lord, like your second coming, are not as clear to us. And we, as your people, differ because our minds are fallible. But Lord, thank you that whenever and however you are coming, you will return. And for, that, for us, it will be glory. We thank you in Jesus' name.